I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, part of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you our regular podcast. This is our speaker series edition where we borrow guests from the home group AA Solution Seekers online. Please enjoy. Thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Keith, and I'm an alcoholic, and my sober date is April 25th, 2022. Um that's the date I stopped drinking. That's not the, my true sobriety date. Um, it wasn't until a couple of months after that that I discovered AA um, and things like that. But I'll, I'll get into that later on. Um, I know you said I have 45 minutes to talk, but probably won't take that long. My life's not that exciting, but um, it's good to know I have that much time. Um, I was raised in a house where we weren't allowed to talk about ourselves or give ourselves props, you know, so it's kind of interesting or weird to do this. I also didn't realize that I don't, I never have my video on until this morning. People are like, you have your video on. We, you've never had your video on before. So I'm going to be very much aware of the fact that um, I need to stop turning my video on. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to when it all started. Um, I remember reading something last, well, two summers ago um, about, becoming an alcoholic before you took your first drink. And as I started thinking back on my life, um, I realized I was an alcoholic long before I took my first drink. So I was born in New York, um, Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was born in Brownsville section of Brooklyn, um, was there for a couple of years. Um, then life events happened and I ended up moving to um, Bed-Stuy. Um, and it was well, interesting thing about um, New Yorkers, you know, when I tell people I'm from New York, they start naming all these different places. And I'm like, I, I only knew Brooklyn. I mean, I knew Manhattan as I got, when I got older, but really I knew Brooklyn. Uh, my family was there. Uh, my church was there. My school was there. So I didn't really have a reason to leave um, as a child. So um, Brooklyn is it. I, people say, where are you from? I say New York, but then I clarify and say I'm from Brooklyn. Um, so, um was born in, in Brownsville. Um, my parents, after I was born, I don't remember where we were living when I was born, but when I was about a year or two old, um, my parents moved to Sethlo Projects. And if you're from Brooklyn, you might know Sethlo Projects um, in Brownsville, ninth floor. Um, and that's really where I remember living, although my sister says um, we were living someplace else when I was born. Um, had a typical regular childhood um, up until about age eight. Uh, we had your know, typical, you know, family disagreements and things like that. Um, but you know, my mother was there. She worked. Well, she she was uh, a housewife for um, a couple of years, and um, she made sure that we had what we needed. My father worked. I have no idea how he survived to take care of a wife and three kids and himself, but he did. Um, and that's really where I get some of my values from and, and things like that. Um, she made sure we got out, we had breakfast and went to school, you know, typical things, um, typical family would do. Um, was normal. Um, they had to induce her labor. And I'm not sure what happened. I was only eight at the time. 
And she went into the hospital. They had to do an emergency C-section. But the hospital fed her, you know, that, that evening. So she vomited and aspirated, um, ended up in the ICU and never came home. So um, my father at the time, he was in his mid-30s. He was left with four children, five children. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, she went into the hospital to have a baby and we had all these plans that she came back, she, you know, we were going to do things. She and I and the baby were going to do things and it didn't happen. Um, I remember when she, um, when they called the day after, the morning after she had, um, they done, had done the C-section and they called my grandmother and told my grandmother. And I remember telling my grandmother, I still had a mother. And she kind of looked at me like, what do you mean? Um, and I don't, I didn't know what I meant. Well, three days later, um, everybody would reflect on what I said because um, three days later, they called the hospital and she um, was gone. And it, it's interesting. My sister will often say that I didn't grieve the death of my mother. And I was like, I thought I had. You know, everyone was crying and carrying on. And I was kind of sitting around like, what's going on? Um, because they're very, I came from a very protective household. Um, my mother had said she wanted to be buried in South Carolina. So, because um, she was from South Carolina. Um, and my father brought it back down to where I am now um, and buried her um, and at her home church. And life at, at that point became interesting because I then decided realizing I was different. You know, my friends would talk about their mother and their father, and I realized I didn't have a mother. So that made me different. My her my mother's parents um, came and got my younger sister and raised her. My brother and sister, they moved back down to South Carolina, but I decided I was going to stay in New York. So it was, it was my father and I for about a year. Um, and, um, and he, you know, he had people take care of me and, you know, would pay babysitters and things like that. Um, it, he wasn't the housekeeper kind of person. So um, after about a, a year, I decided, well, I want to go back. I want to go down south and live with my sister, brothers and sisters. So I came down to South Carolina and um, I spent a year down here. And they told me what life was going to be like before I moved down here and started going to school. But it wasn't until I really got into it that I realized I had to get up every morning, take a school bus. Um, the teachers could paddle you down, paddle you down here. Um, it, it was it was an eye-opening experience, but I realized it was not the experience um, that I wanted or that was conducive to me. So I remember um, I was I went to school for that year. The principal would come in the um, auditorium every morning and paddle the back of a chair. He would yell. And interesting, he looked exactly like my father. So um, I, I just, it, it was just frightening. And um, we had to, when we had gym, we had to shower and all things that, all those things I wasn't used to. And people were interesting. People would say, you know, you grew up in New York, you would take a subway to school and things like that, but you had a problem taking the, the school bus. And I don't think it was so much the school bus as much as what it was the paddling. Um, I got paddled once in school. It, it was, and it was towards the end of school. And I remember calling my father and telling him about it. And 
I remember saying to him, if you don't come and get me, I'm going to start walking. Um, so when I got out of school, um, he was there. He came to pick me up. And I called him. I called my grandmother. I had a grandmother in New York. And I called her and told her what happened. And I think that was the beginning of my alcoholism. I was so selfish. I, you know, I didn't know what it took, what it would take to get me back to New York and transfer my school records and things like that. I just knew I had to go. Um, so that was probably the start. If you say start of your alcoholism, that's when I became very self-centered, I think. First time I can remember. And um, came back home to New York. Uh, went to live with my father for a year and and it was kind of like a, a normal thing. You know, my father and I used to hang out, um, especially on Sundays. He didn't go to church and my family went to church. So I didn't like going to church and um, so I'd hang out with him and kind of knew some of his secrets and didn't think of them as secrets. You know, just something he did while people were in church. I was frightened um, in church. I had anxiety and when people started screaming and hollering and whatever, whatever, I would just literally get up and run out of church. And that was the, the joke. Um, when I got older, I found out that people would, as soon as someone would do it, they would look around to see where I was and knew I was going to leave. So my solution to that was to hang out with my father while everyone was in church. Um, when I moved to South Carolina, um, my great-grandfather was a minister. My family is very religious. Grandfather was chairman of the deacon board. So we went to church. But the difference is we only had church for um, once a month, because the, I think the pastors in the back in the day would travel from church to church. So um, we would only have church once a month. And it was a time for me to see all my cousins and other relatives. So I got used to going to church then. But when I moved back to New York, I remember when my father one day came home and he put this big pot. And he just dumped all this stuff in the pot. And I'm, I stood there and looked, I was looking at him. I said, what is this man doing? And he's like, oh, this is going to be our dinner. And sure enough, it was for a whole week. And I said, oh, I can't do this. So I went over and I was telling my grandmother about it because I would go to my grandmother's, her, his mother uh, on the weekends. And I was telling her about it. I said, I can't do this. Again, my self-centeredness, thinking about myself, I, I can't do this. And I want the world to change, you know, based on what I have and what I say. Um, so my father had, you know, during the time um, of my growing up, my father um, had another child out of wedlock. Um, I'm sorry, I had another child. So um, after my mother died, um, we kind of found out about her. Um, so my father had different people, you know, taking care of me. Um, I went to live with um, the woman who would become my stepmother. Went to school there. Um, didn't particularly like it. Uh, went back to my grandparents and and wanted to um, stay at my grandparents' house. I'm uh, not sure how it happened, but I ended up going there in the sixth, sixth grade, grade six, yeah. Um, and then uh, staying there uh, until I left to go to college. Uh, went to middle school, uh, finished elementary school. Went to middle school, and again, you know, living in the South, we call it middle school, but um, back home, we called it junior high school. Um, went to what I you know, was a, thought was a typical junior high school, but most people said it was a pretty rough school. Um, was in the seventh, did the seventh and eighth grade there. Um, again, was living with my grandparents. My grandmother was very active in the church. So I had to become active in the church um, in order to, um, not, not in order to deliver her, but it was just something we did. 
Um, so my life centered around school and church. Um, and that's really where I got my, my, my upbringing, up, upbringing because people at the church knew that my mother had died because my mother was active in the church also. And again, they treated me differently. Everyone wanted to take care of me for some reason. I could never understand um, why. Um, but everyone wanted to, you know, can Keith come home with me? Can Keith do this? Can Keith do that? And I was a very shy person. I'm, a, I'm an introvert. So I really did not um, understand it and really didn't want to. But, you know, my grandmother would say yes. And I'd kind of go off with these people. Um, but as I became, a, when I became a teenager, um, those things stopped and I became very active in church. And I think people were surprised because of the fact that when I was younger, I was so frightened to be in church, but then I became very active in church. Um, got involved with different organizations. Um, then I went to high school and my high school, I went to John Dewey high school. And if you're from New York, you might be familiar with that school. Um, it was an interesting school. We didn't get grades. You either passed or failed. And, you know, you're in school from eight in the morning to four in the afternoon now. And I say that because I grew up in Bed-Stuy. Uh, Bed the school was in Bensonhurst. So it took me almost two hours one way to get to school. But so my life, again, you know, I, I get up in the morning, five, five thirty, get, you know, get on the train by six thirty, hopefully get to school on time if the subways are running um, like they should. Um, spend all day in school, then take that trip back home. So, you know, I didn't really have time to get involved with anything or, you know, with people or friends, you know. My friends were primarily from church. So I saw them on Sundays and, you know, kept in contact during the week and things like that. We'd have cell phones. Um, I think that's when beepers came out um, and only certain people had a beeper. So um, it was like literally coming home and you know, not really having time to talk with them or interact with them. So my weekends were spent doing things at church. And I became a very religious person. Someone had actually said I was going to be a minister, and I laughed and said, I don't think so. Um, so I, I went through high school. And, you know, that's when I first experienced alcohol. There was always alcohol in our house. My grandfather is from Barbados. Um, so they were big on rum and things like that. And there was always alcohol in my house. I knew where it was, but I never wanted to drink it. Um, my grandmother would buy these little nip. They were called Miller nips um, for my father when he came over. And I remember experimenting with those, with, with the nip and drink, tasting it, not really liking the taste of it. Um, so I, I, didn't, I didn't really drink. So fast forward to um, my senior year in high school, um, because my mother had worked, we were getting social security survival benefits. And I got the, the benefits. Um, and in January of 1982, they called us all to the auditorium and there were a group of us. And I later found out all of us were receiving survival benefits and told us that if we weren't in college by January of that year, we our benefits would be cut off. So what they ended up doing was, um, we had to sign out of high school and they had this agreement with certain colleges that we can go there and finish up our, you know, whatever credits we needed to. You know, this is the first time that, you know, I was kind of, again, like I said, thought I was different because my mother, I died when I was so young, but um, I, you know, realized then that I wasn't the only one. 
um, left to go to college. I went to college out in Long Island, Stony Brook. Um, I was like 16 or 17, something like that. Had never really been involved with alcohol. But then on Thursdays, we would have these parties and, you know, I'd taste alcohol again. I didn't really care for it, um, but just, you know, would participate with the parties that were going on. Um, came home, um, didn't go back. Um, just didn't like, you know, at that point, didn't like being away from home. So ended up, you know, coming back home, you know, going to college, um, decided I was going to be, you know, wanted to be a nurse. Um, I was at, actually, I wanted to be a doctor and I was going to use nursing to fund my way through. So I did that, um, went to nursing school to the prerequisites, um, didn't do well in college. I think part of that was just my maturity. I just wasn't, um, ready for it. Um, and I remember when I applied to nursing school and I went to Beth Israel in Manhattan, the nursing school there. And I remember the Dean said, you know, we're going to let you in provisionally because your grades are horrible. And I'd say, okay. Um, so she let me in and I, I'm really thankful, um, for the ha having had that opportunity because, um, you know, otherwise I don't know where I would be. So went there, did really well. Um, graduated. Again, you know, we would have these keg parties and on Thursday night, they'd have these parties and they'd get these big kegs of beer and bring it in. And, you know, we would drink because at that time I'm drinking age was 18 in New York and we drank, didn't really care for it, but, you know, again, did it just because, you know, everyone else was doing it. We'd have these parties. Um, now, mind you, I was living in a dormitory, nursing school dormitory, so there weren't very many men. Um, I was really the only male. It was one other guy, I think, on my floor. But I was he never hung out with us. So we'd have all these girls hanging out in the hallway. And they'd say some things and talk about things. And I'd kind of cringe, like, oh, my gosh, I'm what, are my sisters doing this? You know, things like that. Um, but like I said, Thursday night, we'd have these keg parties. Um, and I'd give a little, we'd get a little buzz. But I didn't like, uh, really like the taste of beer. And um, also, you know, I was in... Um, lower east side of Manhattan, like I said, drinking age was 18. Well, then I realized there were clubs and there were places you can go and have a good time because I grew up in this religious house and never really listened to any kind of music other than religious music. Spent, you know, all week in school and all weekend um, in church. So I started doing that, but I still would go home on Saturday uh, to go to church on Sunday. I then... Um, started just going to church, you know, going home in the more Sunday mornings, but I still had to go to church. I mean, I was um, something because I was so active in the church that I did. And I really loved it. I remember making, you know, when I was younger, about 16 or 17, a pastor said, you know, make a covenant with God and, you know, live by that. I remember saying to God, you know, and I remember exactly Sunday where I was, I said, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do and do your will. Well, when I left to go to school, um, I kind of forgot about that and uh, started doing my own thing. Again, getting back to that self-centeredness, selfishness. Um, went to nursing school, graduated, um, never really went back home. Um, they had dormitories for us to live in if you worked at the hospital. So I lived um, in the dormitory or apartment um, apartments that they gave us. Um, and I say dormitory because, you know, they had two people. If you're one bedroom, there were two people and things like that. So 
did that, um, worked, um, went back to school. I was back in school. Um, I decided at that point I wanted to go into the military and I had to have a, a four-year degree to go into the military as a nurse. So I went right back to school. Literally the day after I graduated, I went back to school to do that. Um, went to school in lower, um, lower Manhattan, Pace University, and, um, you know, was working full-time and going to school full-time, um, but still was not particularly using anything. Um, I think I would go out to drinks with friends and things like that, but I never liked to taste alcohol. And I didn't like the way it made me feel because it made me go to sleep. Um, and one day at work, I'll never forget this, we had an, an emergency and um, the, the patient Can't pronounce the patient. I'll never forget the um, And I remember just going through that thing the whole day and being so out of it. And a friend of mine said, "Well, let's um, let's go out. You know, you need to go out." Um, and and I, let me just say one thing: my internet does not like Zoom for some reason. So if I go in and out, I apologize. Um, so we went out that night, and that's the that's really when I started drinking. Every weekend, we would go out and we would get drunk. We would get wasted. Um, and the interesting thing is we were on opposite weekends. So, you know, the weekend she had to work, we go out and party and I would have to, I would work that weekend with her to keep her awake. And my weekends, she did the same thing. Um, not really, you know, I really wasn't big on drugs or anything like that. Um, but alcohol became my, my go-to. Um, fast forward two years, I went into the military, um, my family couldn't believe I, I was going to do that because that was such a, um, yeah, my personality didn't fit the military. And I was like, you know, I think you're wrong. I can do this. Um, so I was in the reserves for a while and um, didn't like the unit. And they said, well, I said, well, how can I get out of this? I, I'm done with this. And I just couldn't walk away. Um, the interesting thing, going back when I joined, I didn't really know I was in the military. Things would go went so quickly. I remember calling my sister, who was also in the military. I came from, you know, my cousins, everyone, they had all been, in, were in, well, they were in the military at the time. And my sister said, well, did you raise your right hand and say, so help me God? I was like, yeah. That will keep you in the army. And I said, okay. Um, didn't particularly, I really wasn't military material. So they made me go active duty because I, I, I had an eight-year commitment in the reserves. And I said, they said, well, if you go active duty, you know, um, you can, you know, finish up your time that way. So I did that. Um, I remember doing a, what they call a dream sheet, putting California as my first choice, um, really not really knowing if I wanted to be that far from my family, but they ended up sending me to Augusta, Georgia. And I was like, Augusta, Georgia. Yeah, that was your first choice. Well, at that point I realized military may not always be honest with you, but that's really where they needed me. Um, I didn't know how to drive. Uh, Augusta, Georgia is kind of like a rural place. It was 40 miles from my where my sister lived. So she would drive me back and forth every day to work. Um, they didn't tell me until I was talking with someone when I was in processing that 40, mi 40 miles, a little over 40 miles, I was just over the limit for the military um, and um, that I had to get a pass every day. So I ended up getting an apartment, living on my own. Um, still didn't didn't really do alcohol. I may have had a 
drank or something, or we went, you know, to the club on post to do that, but nothing really happened. So I ended up um, doing my time, getting out, um, and staying, really staying in Augusta. Um, but again, my drinking started to escalate. I had a friend, and again, I, I didn't really know a whole lot about wine and things like that. Um, people go to the store and get the cheapest wine that we could find in the store and come back home and drink it. It wasn't like we couldn't afford anything else, but that was just her little game we would play. And I remember waking up with a headache and saying, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. But I do remember it helping me to relax and helping me to sleep. I had a chronic problem with insomnia. And um, so I remember taking it and really not liking the taste, not looking liking the way that it, it the after effects, the headache I had afterwards, and maybe it was the quality of the drink. But anyway, I did it. It made me feel good, made me feel relaxed and everything. And that was probably the beginning of my drinking. I never really drank very heavily, um, but I knew at that point that if I had problems sleeping or anything like that, I could drink and it would take care of it. Um, so then I, when I got out of the military, I stayed in the South pretty much. And in 1996, I went to, um, I moved to Philadelphia to go back to school. Um, had gotten a, a job there and I could, with free tuition. So I went back to school. Um, again, was partying. Um, didn't really drink that heavily, but drink, I would drink occasionally, um, not really liking the taste. So fast forward, um, 1998, I moved to Maryland for a job, um, and got really into, really liked the job, really liked, you know, the people I was working with, um, really had not been engaged in, in religion or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I was very much, again, that self-centeredness, selfishness was very prevalent in my life. And um, it was all about me, all about, you know, what I needed. And I think that was partly because of the people that I had began to embrace. That was the way things were with them. Um, and they were telling me what I needed to do to be a successful person, not really what I wanted to do. So um, I moved to Silver Spring, Maryland, which is right outside of DC. Um, and then I, I moved to Bowie, Maryland, in 2000. Um, and that's really where I stayed in 2013. Um, I remember being in the store one day, grocery shopping on Sunday, which is totally against my religious beliefs and going to check out and a checkout person talking to me. And I got this really weird feeling. I started breaking out in a sweat, breathing heavily, heart racing, not really know what was going on, came home, looked it up. I was having panic attacks. Uh, well, guess what was cure for panic attacks? Alcohol could calm you down. And I knew that being a nurse, that it could do that. Um, and that's really when I, I think I started really drinking heavily. I initially started drinking only when I came home in the evening. It helped me calm down, it helped me sleep. And it later became a part of my life um, multiple times to the point that I was living in Bowie and I was working in Baltimore and it was about an hour or so drive. Um, I transferred to another school right down the street from my house. And that way I can go home and, you know, take this thing to help me relax. Um, and that's when my drinking really um, took off. Um, got into, because of my anxiety and want to understand, I got into psychiatry, um, became a nurse practitioner um, and um, did that. And I, I continue to do that now. But in 2009, I think my drinking started increasing because I was so overwhelmed with things and just, yeah, 
knew drinking alcohol was the cure. Um, but then I didn't understand about the powerlessness, the, the being powerless with alcohol, because then it, be taught, it started to control my life, which I didn't particularly like. But, you know, I was afraid of going through withdrawals. So I continued to drink and I could drink more and more and more. Until 2012, it just took over. And I remember having gone to the emergency room because I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was going through withdrawals from alcohol um, and calling my sister and telling my sister what was going on. My family was surprised because I was the last person they would think would get to that point. So in 2012, I my sister was living lives in South Carolina where I live now. And I remember coming down to be with her and my other sister um, and no one really understanding what was going on with me. So I said, I can go home. I go back home and, you know, stop, continue my life where it was. But there was no going back. Um, it was a couple of months later in 2013 that I just called my sisters and said, I can't, I can't do this. Um, and came down to live with them in 2013 here in South Carolina. After that point, I kind of dibbled and dabbled. I was never, um, yeah, I was sober. I was, but I later became known as a dry drunk um, because I would stop drinking. And then something in my life would happen. And I always knew I can go back to alcohol um, and alcohol would take care of everything. Well, only thing alcohol did was it helped me sleep for that moment. Um, but when I woke up, the problem was still there. And what I, instead of dealing with the problem, I just drank more and went back to sleep. And that's the way my life was. Um, and went into detox and a detox. And I was sober for a while after that. Um, but whenever I got stressed, I would turn to alcohol. Whenever work got stressed, whenever I got whatever, personal life, whatever, I would always turn to alcohol because alcohol would help me sleep. It would help give me the the the, the ability to face things. And uh, I didn't, but I didn't quite understand it. So when I got into psychiatry, I, I was working as substance abuse because I've been doing that since 1985 um, when I lived in New York. Um, I worked in substance abuse. I was working HIV in New York. If you did HIV, HIV work, you had to pretty much do substance abuse work. Um, so I, I kind of understood a little bit about, um, I knew more about drugs than I did about alcohol. Um, but then I found out alcohol would help me to get through what I need to get through. It helped me sleep, it helped me eat, you know, things like that. Um, my last then, and, and it was like a periodic thing. Like I would, drink, binge drink, and then stop, and binge drink, stop, whenever, again, depending on life's circumstances. Um, my last stint, my last really major thing with alcohol was in 2000, well, went through COVID, um, started losing a lot of my patients, you know, and I worked in mental health, so I really didn't see the medical side of it, but some of my patients were not doing well, and some of them were dying. The only way I would find out is you know, it'd be an obituary. Sometimes family members would call and, and it just got to be overwhelming. So what did I do? I started turning to drinking because I, I couldn't sleep at night because I was like, what's going on? And, um, you know, just, just getting overwhelmed with the whole COVID thing and losing patience and things. So started drinking. Um, at the time, I was also teaching. Um, didn't, didn't teach, didn't drink while I was teaching, but at night would drink, drink, drink. Um, to go to sleep, to deal with the next day. Um, I got a job in North Dakota um, and I, I said, I don't want to move to North Dakota. And I didn't have to, because it was online teaching. Um, got to be really overwhelming. 
Um, that's when my drinking really uh, increased. Um, 2021 into um, 2022. Um, so my family, you know, at one point had me admitted to the hospital. Um, and the doctors didn't really know how I was surviving. I had stopped eating. So my body had literally started eating itself for nutrients. Um, got out. Didn't I wasn't ready to deal with life. And then maybe because I didn't really know how to deal with life. Because I came from such a protective um, background. And ended up after that, continuing to drink. I get out of hospital. I, you know, I'd sober up. I stopped drinking to deal with things, the stress of life. Um, in April of 2022, um, my anxiety had gotten so high. I didn't know exactly what to do. I knew drinking would calm me down, but then once I woke up, I, you know, I get back into that same state that I was in before. Um, I was also afraid at that time because I'd been drinking so much about going to withdrawal. So, um, I continued to drink and I, at that point I was, my rationale was to, um, keep on going to withdrawals. So on April 15th, um, I remember getting up and I always make sure I had alcohol in the house, going to the store because it was Saturday night and you can't buy alcohol on Sunday here. Um, and I went to the, the store, which is right down the street from my house. At some point through all that interaction, I fell asleep at the gas station. They called the police. They took me to, to, um, to the um, detention center. And I stayed there and they ended up taking me to the hospital. And again, doctors were like, you're in horrible shape. And, you know, there's this whole stigma against uh, about alcoholism and, and people who drink. Um, got out, didn't stop. Um, but I knew I had to stop. Um, I was driving um, and I ran into a uh, neighbor's yard again with the whole, you know, went to the detention center. And that, uh, my niece got married, went to the wedding. And I remember getting a drink there and them saying, them saying that, um, thank you, thank you, uh, Mike. Um, them saying that um, getting a call, while well, I was in Jamaica at my niece's wedding, I remember them saying that I had to, the Board of Nursing Called and said that it was like to come stop drinking, but I really didn't know a whole lot about sobriety. Went through, you know, mon um, assessments and things like that. They just told me I was a mess. I needed to be away, put away, and things like that. I couldn't afford it, so I came home and um, I started thinking, you know, what could I do? And I remember AA. I remember going on on the internet looking for groups and figure out how to do this whole AA thing. Well, you know, I didn't want to go to the AA. Um, meeting in my neighborhood, in my community, because people knew me and things. Discovered Zoom. And when I go to these meetings and people would talk about AA and how great AA was and things like that. And I was like, I can't understand. I didn't understand that. But there were people who talked about longevity and what they did and how they stayed sober. Now, I didn't have a choice. I had to stay sober because I was being monitored and I would, they would get random drug and alcohol tests on me. So, um, any mind-altering drugs that I was on for anxiety, I had to come off. And um, I did that. 
there were people in the room though who um I, I didn't know anything about getting a sponsor or anything like that. I I gone to AA meeting earlier and got a sponsor. It didn't work out. So it really wasn't, I really didn't think AA was for me. But when I started coming to AA and I started listening, I started taking the, I took the cotton out of my ears, put it in my mouth. And people said, you got to work the steps. You got to get a sponsor. You got to work the steps. You got to read the big book. I thought the big book was the Bible, but it was AA, AA big book. It wasn't until, I guess, the fall of 2022, I realized I was powerless. You know, people kept talking about powerless and powerless, what that meant. And I remember doing the self-inventory and realizing that I was drinking and that drinking had control of my life. And drinking had control of my life all the way back in the early 2000s. And I didn't really realize that. Started working steps, um, listening to people, wasn't really talking a whole lot. Um, again, that was probably part of my personality. Um, didn't have a sponsor. So, you know, I figured, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years or more. You know, I can do this on my own. I realized I couldn't. Started coming to meetings um, and really started doing what people told me to do. And I think that was the, the thing that kept me sober and keeps me sober today is that I work the steps. I listen to what people say. You know, you know, I grew up and I love it when Ms. Juanita, sorry for cross-talking, says, you know, I know who holds my future. And that's a song we used to sing when I was a kid in church, who holds my future. I know what I need to do. I used to worry about the future, but now I don't really worry about the future. My, that was caused a lot of my anxiety was worrying about the future because I know who holds my hand and who's going to keep me through that. Again, just, you know, became back active in the things I knew, church, religion. It wasn't spiritual, but it wasn't until I became, I realized I had to become spiritual to, um, to overcome this thing called alcohol. So um, started working the steps in 2022, 2023. Um continue, you know, to work in the steps and have become sober. And now I'm out there and I'm I'm tuning a horn of people um, of alcohol, AA and how to become sober. So that's, you know, I know an hour, you know, I'm, I'm 59 years old and, um, you know, people often tell me, they don't believe it, I'm 59. You know, so I had to condense 59 minutes, 59 years into um, a few minutes. And that's really where I am today. You know, I don't miss a meeting because I know I got to come to meetings to listen to other people. I got to start listening to other. I'm not the expert, even though I thought I was at one point. I'm not the expert. You know, I'm still a baby in this thing called alcoholism. Not even two years um, without a drink yet. So um, that's really where I am today. Um, I didn't think I was going to take the whole time to talk. Um, but I guess 59 years, you know, you can condense into an hour. Um, but I thank everyone here. You know, I don't really say it very often, but I think people thank people in these rooms. Some of you were in the room that I came into, you know, back in 2022. And I listened to what you had to say. And then um, I kind of heard about this solution seekers and I came in and um, decided I wanted to make this my home group because this is where the people who got me sober, really sober, um, this is where they were. And if I wanted to stay sober, I had to, you know, hang around people who were doing what they needed to do. So um, on that note, I just want to say thank you for letting me share. I hope I was an inspiration to someone. And, um, you know, I'm going to keep hanging around. You know, they, they say keep coming back. It works if you work it. And that is something I learned to live by. So thanks again for letting me share. And everyone have a great day. Sorry for the video and the, the choppiness of my internet. But I live in a country, so it comes in and out. But thanks. Oh. And that was another fantastic speaker from AA Solution Seekers online group. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to bring you great speaker, 
one after another. From Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm Lisa. Thanks for joining us.